Section thirty one of Tom Jones. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to find out how to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nikki Sullivan. Tom Jones by Henry Fielding. Chapter ten. In which our travellers meet with a very extraordinary adventure. Just as Jones and his friend came to the end of their dialogue in the preceding chapter, they arrived at the bottom of a very steep hill. Here Jones stopped short, and directing his eyes upward, stood for a while silent. At length he called to his companion, and said, Partridge, I wish I was at the top of this hill. It must certainly afford a most charming prospect, especially by this light. For the solemn gloom which the moon casts on all objects is beyond expression beautiful, especially to an imagination which is desirous of cultivating melancholy ideas. "'Very probably,' answered Partridge. "'But if the top of the hill be properest to produce melancholy thoughts, "'I suppose the bottom is the likeliest to produce merry ones, "'and these I take to be much the better of the two. "'I protest you have made my blood run cold "'with the very mentioning of the top of that mountain, "'which seems to me to be one of the highest in the world. "'No, no, if we look for anything, "'let it be for a place underground to screen ourselves from the frost. "'Do so.' said Jones. Let it be but within hearing range of this place, and I will hollow to you when I return back. Surely, sure, you are not mad, said Partridge. Indeed I am, answered Jones, if ascending this hill is madness. But as you complain so much of the cold already, I would have you stay below. I will certainly return to you within an hour. Pardon me, sir, cries Partridge. I have determined to follow you wherever you go. Indeed, he was now afraid to stay behind, for though he was coward enough in all respects, yet his chief fear was that of ghosts, with which the present time of night, and the wildness of the place, extremely well suited. At this instant, Partridge espied a glimmering light through some trees, which seemed very near to them. He immediately cried out in rapture, "'Oh, sir, heaven hath at last heard my prayers, and hath brought us to a house!' Perhaps it may be an inn. Let me beseech you, sir, if you have any compassion either for me or for yourself, do not despise the goodness of Providence, but let us go directly to yon light. Whether it be a public house or no, I am sure, if they be Christians that dwell there, they will not refuse a little house-room to persons in our miserable condition. Jones at length yielded to the earnest supplications of Partridge, and both together made directly towards the place whence the light issued. They soon arrived at the door of this house, or cottage, for it might be called either, with much impropriety. Here Jones knocked several times without receiving any answer from within, at which Partridge, whose head was full of nothing but ghosts, devils, witches, and the like, began to tremble, crying, "'Lord, have mercy on us! Surely the people must be all dead!' I can see no light neither now, and yet I am certain I saw a candle burning a moment before. Well, I have heard of such things. What hast thou heard of? said Jones. The people are either fast asleep, or, probably, as this is a lonely place, are afraid to open the door. He then began to vociferate pretty loudly, and at last an old woman, opening an upper casement, asked who they were and what they wanted. Jones answered, they were travellers who had lost the way, and having seen a light in the window, had been led thither in hopes of finding some fire to warm themselves. "'Whoever you are,' cries the woman, "'you have no business here, nor shall I open the door to any one at this time of night.' Partridge, whom the sound of human voice had recovered from his fright, fell to the most earnest supplications to be admitted for a few minutes of fire, saying he was almost dead with cold." to which fear had indeed contributed equally with the forest. He assured her that the gentleman who spoke to her was one of the greatest squires in the country, and made use of every argument save one, which Jones afterward effectually added, and this was the promise of half a crown, a bribe too great to be resisted by such a person, especially as the genteel appearance of Jones, which the light of the moon plainly discovered to her, together with his affable behavior, 
had entirely subdued those apprehensions of thieves which she had at first conceived. She agreed, therefore, at last, to let them in, where Partridge, to his infinite joy, found a good fire ready for his reception. The poor fellow, however, had no sooner warmed himself than those thoughts which were always uppermost in his mind began a little to disturb his brain. There was no article of his creed in which he had stronger faith than he had in witchcraft. Nor can the reader conceive of a figure more adapted to inspire this idea than the old woman who now stood before him. She answered exactly to that picture drawn by Otway and his orphan. Indeed, if this woman had lived in the reign of James I, her appearance alone would have hanged her, almost without any evidence. Many circumstances likewise conspired to confirm Partridge in his opinion. Her living, as he then imagined, by herself in so lonely a place, and in a house the outside of which seemed much too good for her, but its inside was furnished with the most neat and elegant manner. To say the truth, Jones himself was not a little surprised at what he saw, for, besides the extraordinary neatness of the room, it was adorned with a great number of knick-knacks and curiosities, which might have engaged the attention of a virtuoso. While Jones was admiring these things, Partridge sat trembling with the firm belief that he was in the house of a witch. The old woman said, "'I hope, gentlemen, that you will make what haste you can, for I expect my master presently, and I would not for double the money he should find you here.' "'Then you have a master?' cried Jones." "'Indeed, you will excuse me, good woman, but I was surprised to see all those fine things in your house.' "'Ah, sir,' she said, "'if the twentieth part of these things were mine, I should think myself a rich woman. But pray, sir, do not stay much longer, for I look for him in every minute.' "'Why, sure he would not be angry with you,' said Jones, for doing a common act of charity. "'Lack a day, sir,' said she, "'he is a strange man.' not at all like other people. He keeps no company with anybody, and seldom walks out by night, for he doth not care to be seen. And all the country people are as much afraid of meeting him, for his dress is enough to frighten those who are not used to it. They call him the Man of the Hill, for there he walks by night. And the country people are not, I believe, more afraid of the devil himself. He would be terribly angry if he found you here. Pray, sir, says Partridge, don't let us offend the gentleman. I am ready to walk, and was never warmer in my life. Do pray, sir, let us go. Here are pistols over by the chimney. Who knows whether they be charged or no, or what he may do with them? Fear nothing, Partridge, cries Jones. I will secure thee from danger. Nay, for matter of that, he never doth any mischief, says the woman. But to be sure, it is necessary he should keep some arms for his own safety. For this house have been beset more than once, and it is not many nights ago that we thought we heard thieves about it. For my own part, I have often wondered that he is not murdered by some villain or other, as he walks out by himself at such hours. But then, as I said, the people are afraid of him. And besides, they think, I suppose, he has nothing about him worth taking. "'I should imagine, by this collection of rarities,' cried Jones, "'that your master had been a traveller.' "'Yes, sir,' answered she. "'He hath been a very great one. There are few gentlemen that know more of all matters than he.' I fancy he hath been crossed in love, or whatever it is I know not, but I have lived with him above these thirty years, and in all that time he hath hardly spoke to six living people. She then again solicited their departure, in which she was backed by Partridge, but Jones purposefully protracted the time, for his curiosity was greatly raised to see this extraordinary person. Though the old woman, therefore, concluded every one of her answers with desiring him to be gone, and Partridge proceeded so far as to pull him by the sleeve, he still continued to invent new questions, till the old woman, with an unfrightened countenance, declared she heard her master's signal, and at the same instant more than one voice was heard without the door, crying, "'Dun your blood! Show us your money this instant! Your money, you villain, or we will blow your brains about your ears!' "'Oh, good heavens!' cried the woman. "'Some villains, to be sure, have attacked my master. What shall I do?' how cried jones how are these pistols loaded oh good sir there is nothing in them indeed oh pray don't murder us gentlemen for in reality she now had the same opinion of those within as she had of those without jones made her no answer but snatching an old board sword which hung in the room he instantly sallied out where he found the old gentleman struggling with two ruffians and begging for mercy 
Jones asked no questions, but fell so briskly to work with his broadsword that the fellows immediately quitted their hold, and without offering to attack our hero, betook themselves to their heels and made their escape, for he did not attempt to pursue them, being contented with having delivered the old gentleman. And indeed he concluded he had pretty well done their business, for both of them, as they ran off, cried out with bitter oaths that they were dead men. Jones presently ran to lift up the old gentleman, who had been thrown down in the scuffle, expressing at the same time great concern lest he should have received any harm from the villains. The old man stared a moment at Jones, and then cried, "'No, sir, no, I have very little harm, thank you. Lord have mercy upon me.' "'I see, sir,' said Jones, "'you are not free from apprehensions, even of those who have had the happiness to be your deliverers.' "'No, nor can I blame any suspicions which you may have.' but indeed you have no real occasion for any here are none but your friends present having missed our way this cold night we took the liberty of warming ourselves at your fire whence we were just departing when we heard you call for assistance which i must say providence alone seems to have sent you providence indeed cried the old gentleman if it be so so it is i assure you cried jones here is your own sword sir i have used it in your defence and I now return it to your hand. The old gentleman, having received the sword, which was stained with the blood of his enemies, looked steadfastly at Jones during some moments, and then, with a sigh, cried out, "'You will pardon me, young gentleman. I was not always a suspicious temper, nor am I a friend to ingratitude.' "'Be thankful, then,' cries Jones, "'to that providence to which you owe your deliverance. As to my part,' I have only discharged the common duties of humanity in what I would have done for any other fellow-creature in your situation. Let me look at you a little longer, cries the old gentleman. You are a human creature, then? Well, perhaps you are. Come, pray, walk into my little hut. You have been my deliverer, indeed. The old woman was distracted between the fears which she had of her master and for him, and Partridge was, if possible, in a greater fright. The former of these, however— when she heard her master speak kindly to Jones, and perceived what had happened, came again to herself. But Partridge no sooner saw the gentleman than the strangeness of his dress infused greater terrors into that poor fellow than he had before felt, either from the strange descriptions which he had heard, or from the uproar which had happened at the door. To say the truth, it was an appearance which might have affected a more constant mind than that of Mr. Partridge. This person was of the tallest size, with a long beard as white as snow. His body was clothed with the skin of an ass, made something into the form of a coat. He wore likewise boots on his legs, and a cap on his head, both composed of the skin of some other animals. As soon as the old gentleman came into his house, the old woman began her congratulations on his happy escape from the ruffians. "'Yes,' cried he, "'I have escaped, indeed, thanks to my preserver. Oh, the blessing on him!' answered she. He is a good gentleman, I warrant him. I was afraid your worship would have been angry with me for letting him in, and to be certain I should not have done it, and had not I seen by the moonlight that he was a gentleman, and almost frozen to death. But to be certain, it must have been some good angel that sent him hither, and tempted me to do it. I am afraid, sir, said the old gentleman to Jones, that I have nothing in this house which you can either eat or drink, unless you will accept a dram of brandy, of which I can give you some most excellent, and which I have had by me these thirty years. Jones declined this offer in a very civil and proper speech, and then the other asked him whither he was travelling when he missed his way, saying, I must own myself surprised to see such a person as you appear to us, journeying on foot at this time of night. I suppose, sir, you are a gentleman of these parts, for you do not look like one who is used to travel far without horses. Appearances, cried Jones, are often deceitful. Men sometimes look what they are not. I assure you I am not of this country, and whither I am travelling, in reality, I scarce knows myself. Whoever you are, or whithersoever you are going, answered the old man, I have obligations to you which I can never return. I once more, repeated, replied Jones, affirm that you have none for there can be no merit in having hazarded that in your service on which I set no value, and nothing is so contemptible in my eyes as life. I am sorry, young gentleman, answered the stranger, that you have any reason to be so unhappy at your years. 
"'Indeed I am, sir, the most unhappy of mankind.' "'Perhaps you have had a friend or a mistress?' replied the other. "'How could you,' cried Jones, "'mention two words sufficient to drive me to distraction?' "'Either of them are enough to drive any man to distraction,' answered the old man. "'I inquire no farther, sir. Perhaps my curiosity has led me too far already.' "'Indeed, sir,' cries Jones, "'I cannot censure a passion which I feel at this instant in the highest degree. You will pardon me when I assure you that everything which I have seen or heard since I first entered this house hath conspired to raise the greatest curiosity in me. Something very extraordinary must have determined you to this course of life, and I have reason to fear your own history is not without misfortunes.' Here the old gentleman again sighed, and remained silent for some minutes. At last— Looking earnestly on Jones, he said, "'I have read that a good countenance is a letter of recommendation. If so, none ever can be more strongly recommended than yourself. If I did not feel some yearnings towards you from another consideration, I must be the most ungrateful monster upon the earth, and I am really concerned it is no otherwise in my power than by words to convince you of my gratitude.' Jones, after a moment's hesitation, answered, that it was in his power by words to gratify him extremely. I have confessed a curiosity, said he. Sir, need I say how much obliged I should be to you, if you would condescend to gratify it? Will you suffer me, therefore, to beg, unless any consideration restrains you, that you should be pleased to acquaint me what motives have induced you thus to withdraw from the society of mankind, and to betake yourself to the course of life to which it sufficiently appears you were not born? "'I scarcely think myself at liberty to refuse you anything after what hath happened,' replied the old man. "'If you desire, therefore, to hear the story of an unhappy man, I will relate it to you. "'Indeed you judge rightly, and thinking there is commonly something extraordinary in the fortunes of those who fly from society. "'For however it may seem a paradox, or even a contradiction, certain it is that great philanthropy chiefly inclines us to avoid and detest mankind.' not on account of so much of their private and selfish vices, but for those of a relative kind, such as envy, malice, treachery, cruelty, with every other species of malevolence. These are vices which true philanthropy abhors, and which rather than see and converse with, she avoids society itself. However, without a compliment to you, do you not appear to me one of those whom I should shun or detest? Nay, I must say, in what little hath dropped from you, there appears some parity in our fortunes. I hope, however, yours will conclude more successfully. Here some compliments passed between our hero and his host, and then the latter was going to begin his story, when Partridge interrupted him. His apprehensions had now pretty well left him, but some effects of his terrors remained. He therefore reminded the gentleman of that excellent brandy which he had mentioned. This was presently brought, and Partridge swallowed a large bumper. The gentleman then, without any further preface, began as you may read in the next chapter. Chapter 11 In which the man of the hill begins to relate his history. I was born in a village of Somersetshire, called Mark, in the year of 1657. My father was one of those whom they call the gentleman farmers. He had a little estate, of about three hundred pounds a year, of his own, and rented another estate of near the same value. He was prudent and industrious, and so good a husbandman, that he might have led a very easy and comfortable life, had not an errant vixen of a wife soured his domestic quiet. But though his circumstance perhaps made him miserable, it did not make him poor, for he confined her almost entirely at home, and rather chose to bear eternal upbraidings in his own house, than to injure his fortune by indulging her in the extravagancies she desired abroad. By this Xanthippe, so was the wife of Socrates called, said Partridge, by this Xanthippe he had two sons, of which I was the younger. He designed to give us both good education, but my elder brother, who, unhappily for him, was the favorite of my mother, utterly neglecting his learning, insomuch that, after having been five or six years at school with little or no improvement, my father, being told by his master that it would be to no purpose to keep him longer there, at last complied with my mother in taking him home from the hands of that tyrant, as she called his master, 
though indeed he gave the lad much less correction than his idleness deserved, but much more, it seems, than the young gentleman liked, who consistently complained to his mother of his severe treatment, and she as constantly gave him a hearing. "'Yes, yes,' cries Partridge. "'I have seen such mothers. I have been abused myself by them, and very unjustly. Such parents deserve correction as much as their children.' Jones chid the pedagogue for his interruption, and then the stranger proceeded. My brother now, at the age of fifteen, bade adieu to all learning, and to everything else but to his dog and gun, with which the latter he became so expert that, though perhaps you may think it incredible, he could not only hit a standing mark with great certainty, but hath actually shot a crow as it was flying in the air. He was likewise excellent at finding a hare sitting, and was soon reputed one of the best sportsmen in the country, a reputation which both he and his mother enjoyed as much as if he had been thought the finest scholar. The situation of my brother made me at first think my lot the harder, in being continued at school. But I soon changed my opinion, for as I advanced pretty fast in learning, my labors became easy, and my exercise so delightful that holidays were my most unpleasant time, for my mother, who never loved me, now apprehending that I had the greater share of my father's affection, and finding, or at least thinking, that I was more taken notice of by some gentlemen of learning, and particularly by the person of the parish, than my brother, she now hated my sight, and made home so disagreeable to me, that what is called by schoolboys Black Monday was to me the whitest in the whole year. Having at length gone to the school at Taunton, I was thence removed to Exeter College in Oxford, where I remained four years at the end of which an accident took me off entirely from my studies, and hence I may truly date the rise of all which happened to me afterward in life. There was at the same college with myself one Sir George Grisham, a young fellow who was entitled to a very considerable fortune, which he was not, by the will of his father, to come into full possession till he arrived at the age of twenty-five. However, the liberality of his guardians gave him little cause to regret the abundance caution of his father, for they allowed him five hundred pounds a year while he remained at the university, where he kept his horses in his whore, and lived as wicked and as profligate a life as he could have done, had he been never so entirely master of his fortune. For besides the five hundred a year which he had received from his guardians, he found means to spend a thousand more. He was above the age of twenty-one, and had no difficulty in gaining what credit he pleased. This young fellow— among many other tolerable bad qualities, had one very diabolical. He had a great delight in destroying and ruining the youth of inferior fortune, by drawing them into expenses which they could not afford so well as himself. And the better, and worthier, and soberer any young man was, the greater pleasure and triumph he had in his destruction, thus acting the character which is recorded of the devil, and going about seeking whom he might devour." It was my misfortune to fall into the acquaintance and intimacy with this gentleman. My reputation of diligence in my studies made me a desirable object of his mischievous intention, and my own inclination made it sufficiently easy for him to effect his purpose. For though I had applied myself with much industry to books, in which I took great delight, there were other pleasures in which I was capable of taking much greater. For I was high-metted, had a violent flow of animal spirits, was a little ambitious, and extremely amorous. I had not long contracted an intimacy with Sir George before I became a partaker of all his pleasure, and when I was once entered on that scene, neither my inclination nor my spirit would suffer me to play an underpart. I was second to none in the company in acts of debauchery. Nay, I soon distinguished myself so notably in all riots and disorders that my name generally stood first in the role of delinquents and instead of being lamented at this unfortunate pupil of Sir George, I was now accused as the person who had misled the debauched and hopeful young gentleman. For though he was the ringleader and promoter of all the mischief, he was never so considered. I fell at last under the censure of the vice-chancellor, and very narrowly escaped expulsion. You will easily believe, sir, that such a life as I am now describing must be incompatible with my further progress in learning, and that in proportion as I addicted myself more and more to loose pleasure, I must grow more and more remiss in application to my studies. This was truly the consequence, but this was not all. 
my expenses now greatly exceeded not only my former income but those additions which i had extorted from my poor generous father on pretences of sums being necessary for preparing for my approaching degree of the bachelor of arts these demands however grew at last so frequent and exorbitant that my father by slow degrees opened his ears to the accounts which he received from many quarters of my present behaviour and which my mother failed not to echo very faithfully and loudly adding ay this is the fine gentleman the scholar who doth so much honour to his family and is to be the making of it i thought what all this learning would come to he is to be the ruin of us all i find after his elder brother hath been denied necessaries for his sake to perfect his education forsooth for which he was to pay us such interests i thought what the interest would come to with much more of the same kind but i have i believe satisfied you with this taste my father therefore began now to return remonstrances instead of money to my demands which brought my affairs perhaps a little sooner to a crisis but had he remitted me his whole income you will imagine it could have sufficed a very short time to support one who kept pace with the expense of sir george Grisham. it is more than possible that the distress i was now in for money and the impracticability of going on in this manner might have restored me at once to my senses and to my studies had i opened my eyes before i became involved in the debts from which i saw no hopes of ever extricating myself this was indeed the great art of sir george and by which he accomplished the ruin of many whom he afterwards laughed at as fools and coxcombs for vying as he called it with the man of his fortune to bring this about he would now and then advance a little money himself in order to support the credit of the unfortunate youth with other people till by means of that very credit he was irretrievably undone my mind being by these means grown as desperate as my fortune there was scarce a wickedness which i did not meditate in order for my relief self-murder itself became the subject of my serious deliberation and i had certainly resolved on it had not a more shameful though perhaps less sinful thought expelled it from my head he hesitated a moment and then cried out i protest so many years have not washed away the shame of this act and i shall blush while i relate it jones desired him to pass over anything that might give him pain in relation but partridge eagerly cried out oh pray sir let us hear this i had rather hear this than all the rest as i hope to be saved i will not mention a word of it jones was going to rebuke him but the stranger prevented it by proceeding thus i had a chum a very prudent frugal young lad who though he had no very large allowance had by his parsimony heaped upwards of forty guineas which i knew he kept in his escotoir i took therefore the, an opportunity of purloining his key from his breeches pocket while he was asleep and thus made myself master of all his riches after which i again conveyed his key into his pocket and counterfeiting sleep though i never once closed my eyes lay in bed till after he arose and went to prayers an exercise to which i had long been accustomed timorous thieves by extreme caution often subject themselves to discoveries which those of a bolder kind escape thus it happened to me for i had boldly broke open his escritoire i had perhaps escaped him his suspicion but as it was plain that the person who robbed him had possessed himself of his key he had no doubt when he first missed the money but that his chum was certainly the thief now as he was of a fearful disposition and much my inferior in strength and i believe in courage he did not dare to confront me with my guilt for fear of worse bodily consequences which might happen to him he repaired therefore immediately to the vice-chancellor and upon swearing to the robbery and to the circumstances of it very easily obtained a warrant against one who had now so bad a character through the whole university luckily for me i lay out of the college the next evening for that day i attended a young lady in a chase to whitney where we stayed all night and on our return the next morning to oxford i met one of my cronies who acquainted me with sufficient news concerning myself to make me turn my horse another way a pray sir did he mention anything of the warrants said partridge but jones begged the gentleman to proceed without regarding any impertinent questions which he did as follows having now abandoned all thoughts of returning to oxford the next thing which offered itself was the journey to london i imparted this intention to my female companion who at first remonstrated against it 
but upon producing my wealth she immediately consented. We then struck across the country, into the great Siren Center Road, and made such haste that we spent the next evening, save one, in London. When you consider the place where I now was, and the company with whom I was, you will, I fancy, conceive that a very short time brought me to the end of that sum of which I had so iniquitously possessed myself. I was now reduced to a much higher degree of distress than before. The necessities of life began to be numbered among my wants, and what made my case still the more grievous was that my paramour, of whom I was now grown immoderately fond, shared the same distresses with myself. To see a woman you love in distress, to be unable to relieve her, and at the same time to reflect that you have brought her into this situation, is perhaps a curse of which no imagination can represent the horrors to those who have not felt it. I believe it from my soul, cries Jones, and I pity you from the bottom of my heart, and then took two or three disorderly turns about the room, and at last begged pardon and flung himself into his chair, crying, I thank heaven I have escaped that. This circumstance, continued the gentleman, so severely aggravated the horrors of my present situation, that they became absolutely intolerable. I could with less pain endure the raging of my own natural unsatisfied appetites, even hunger or thirst, than I could submit to leave ungratified the most whimsical desires of a woman on whom I so extravagantly doted, that, though I knew she had been the mistress of half my acquaintance, I firmly intended to marry her. But the good creature was unwilling to consent to an action which the world might think so much to my disadvantage. And as, possibly, she compassionated the daily anxieties which she must have perceived me suffer on her account, she resolved to put an end to my distress. She soon, indeed, found means to relieve me from my troublesome and perplexed situation, for while I was distracted with various inventions to supply her with pleasures, she very kindly betrayed me to one of her former lovers at Oxford, by whose care and diligence I was immediately apprehended and committed to jail. Here I first began to seriously reflect on the miscarriages of my former life, on the errors I had been guilty of, on the misfortunes which I had brought on myself, and on the grief which I must have occasioned to one of the best of fathers. When I added to all these the perfidy of my mistress, such was the horror of my mind that life, instead of being longer desirable, grew the object of my abhorrence, and I could have gladly embraced death as my dearest friend, if it had offered itself to my choice unattended by shame. The time of the assizes soon came, and I was removed by habeas corpus to Oxford, where I expected certain conviction and condemnation. But, to my great surprise, none appeared against me, and I was, at the end of the sessions, discharged for want of prosecution. In short, my chum had left Oxford, and whither, from indolence, or from what other motive I am ignorant, had declined concerning himself any farther in the affair. Perhaps, cries Partridge, he did not care to have your blood upon his hands, as he was in his right aunt. If any person was to be hanged upon my evidence, I should never be able to lie alone afterwards for fear of seeing his ghost. I shall surely doubt, Partridge, says Jones, whether thou art more brave or wise. You may laugh at me, sir, if you please, answered Partridge. But if you will hear a very short story which I can tell, and which is most certainly true, perhaps you may change your opinion. In the parish where I was born, here Jones would have silenced him, but the stranger interceded that he might be permitted to tell his story, and in the meantime promised to recollect the remainder of his own. Partridge then proceeded thus. In the parish where I was born, there lived a farmer whose name was Bridal, and he had a son named Francis, a good hopeful young fellow. I was at grammar school with him, where I remember he was got into Ovid's epistles, and he could construe you three lines together sometimes without looking into the dictionary. Besides all this, he was a very good lad, and never missed church on Sundays, and was reckoned one of the best palm singers in the whole parish. He would indeed now and then take a cup too much, and that was the only fault he had. "'Well, but come to the ghost,' cried Jones. "'Never fear, sir. I shall come to him soon enough,' answered Partridge. "'You must know, then, that Farmer Bridal lost a mare, a sorrel one, to the best of my remembrance, and so it fell out, that this young Francis, shortly afterward being at a fair in Hendon, and as I think it was on, 
I can't remember the day, and being as he was, what should he happen to meet but a man upon his father's mare? Frank called out presently, Stop, thief! And it being in the middle of the fair, it was impossible, you know, for the man to make his escape. So they apprehended him and carried him before the justice. I remember it was Justice Willoughby of Noyle, a very worthy good gentleman, and he committed him to prison and bound Frank in a recognizance, I think they called it, a hard word compounded of a re and a cognoso, but it differs in its meaning from the use of the simple, as may other compounds do. Well, at last down came my Lord Justice Page to hold the assizances, and so the fellow was had up, and Frank was had up, for a witness. To be sure, I shall never forget the face of the judge when he began to ask him what he had to say against the prisoner. He made poor Frank tremble and shake in his shoes. "'Well, you fellow,' says my lord, "'what have you to say?' Don't stand humming and hawing, but speak out. But, however, he soon turned altogether as civil to Frank, and began to thunder at the fellow. And when he asked him if he had anything to say for himself, the fellow said, He had found the horse. I, answered the judge, thou art a lucky fellow. I have travelled the circuit these forty years, and have never found a horse in my life. I'll tell you what, friend, thou wast more lucky than thou didst know of. For thou didst not only find a horse, but a halter too, I promise thee. But to be sure, I shall never forget the word, upon which everybody fell laughing, as how could they help it? Nay, in the twenty other justs he made, which I can't remember now. There was something about his skill in horse-flesh which made all the folks laugh. To be certain, the judge must have been a very brave man, as well as a man of much learning. It is indeed charming sport to hear the trials upon life and death. One thing I own, I thought, a little hard, that the prisoner's counsel was not suffered to speak for him, though he desired only to be heard one very short word. But my lord would not hearken to him, though he suffered a counsellor to talk against him for above half an hour. I thought it hard, I own, that there should be so many of them, my lord, in the court, the jury, in the jury, and the counsellors and the witnesses all upon one poor man, and he too in chains. Well, the poor fellow was hanged, as to be sure it could be no otherwise. And poor Frank could never be easy about it. He never was in the dark alone, but he fancied he saw the fellow's spirit. Well, is this thy story? cries Jones. No, no, answered Partridge. O oh, Lord, have mercy upon me. I am just now coming to the matter. For one night, coming from the alehouse in a long narrow dark lane there he ran directly up against him and the spirit was all in white and fell upon frank and frank who was a sturdy lad fell upon the spirit again and there they had a tussle together and poor frank was dreadfully beat indeed he made a shift at last to crawl home but what with the beating and what with the fright he lay ill above a fortnight and all this is more certainly true and the whole parish will bear witness to it the stranger smiled at this story, and Jones burst into a loud fit of laughter, upon which Partridge cried, "'Ah, you may laugh, sir, but so did some others, particularly the squire, who was thought to be no better than an atheist, who, forsooth, because there was a calf with a white face, found dead in the same lane the next morning, would fain have it that the battle was between Frank and that, as if a calf would set upon a man. Besides, Frank told me he knew it to be the spirit.' and he could swear to him in any court in Christendom. And he had not drank above a quart or two, or such a matter of liquor, at the time. Lord, have mercy upon us, and keep us all from dipping our hands into blood, I say. <sighs> well, sir, said Jones to the stranger, Mr. Partridge has finished his story, and I hope you will give no further interruption, if you will be so kind as to proceed. He then resumed his narration, but as he had taken a breath for a while, we think it proper to give it to our reader, and shall therefore put an end to this chapter. Chapter 12. In which the man of the hill continues his history. I had now regained my liberty, said the stranger, but had lost my reputation, for there is a wide difference between the case of a man who is barely acquitted of a crime in the court of justice, and of him who is acquitted in his own heart and in the opinion of other people. 
I was conscious of my guilt, and ashamed to look at any one in the face. So resolved to leave Oxford the next morning, before the daylight discovered me to the eyes of any beholders. When I had got clear of the city, it first entered into my head to return home to my father, and endeavour to attain his forgiveness. But as I had no reason to doubt his knowledge of all which had passed, as I was well assured of his great aversion to all acts of dishonesty, I could entertain no hopes of being received by him, especially since I was too certain of all the good offices in the power of my mother. Nay, I had my father's pardon to be sure, as I conceived his resentment to be. I yet questioned whether I could have had the assurance to behold him, or whether I could, upon any terms, have submitted to live and converse with those who, I was convinced, knew me to have been guilty of so base an action. I hastened therefore to London, the best retirement of either grief or shame, unless for persons of a very public character. For here you have the advantage of solitude without its disadvantage, since you may be alone and in company at the same time. And while you walk or sit unobserved, noise, hurry, and a constant succession of objects entertain the mind and prevent the spirits from preying on themselves, or rather on grief or shame, which are the most unwholesome diet in the world, and on which, though there are many who never taste either but in public, there are some who can feed very plentifully and very fatally when alone. But as there is scarce any human good without its concomitant evil, so there are people who find an inconvenience in this unobserving temper of mankind. I mean persons who have no money, for as you are not put out of countenance, so neither are you clothed or fed by those who do not know you. And a man may be as easily starved in Leadenhall Market as in the deserts of Arabia. It was at present my fortune to be destitute of that great evil, as it is apprehended to be by several writers, who I suppose were overburdened with it, namely money. With submission, sir, said Partridge, I do not remember any writers who have called it melorum, but irretimenta melorum, effo denunter opeth, irretimenta melorum. Well, sir, continued the stranger, whether it be an evil, or only the cause of evil, I was entirely void of it, and at the same time of friends, and, as I thought, of acquaintance, when one evening, as I was passing through the inner temple, very hungry and very miserable, I heard a voice on a sudden hailing me with great familiarity by my Christian name, and upon turning about I presently recollected the person who so saluted me to have been my fellow collegiate, one who had left university above a year, and long before any of my misfortunes had befallen me. This gentleman, whose name was Watson, shook me heartily by the hand, and expressing great joy at meeting me, proposed our immediate drinking a bottle together. I first declined the proposal, and pretended business, but he was very earnest in pressing. Hunger at last overcame my pride, and I fairly confessed to him I had no money in my pocket, yet not without framing a lie for an excuse, and imputing it to having changed my breeches that morning. Mr. Watson answered, I thought, Jack, you and I had been two old acquaintances for you to mention such a matter. He then took me by the arm, and was pulling me along, but I gave him very little trouble, for my own inclinations pulled me much stronger than he could do. We then went into the friars, which, you know, is the scene of all mirth and jollity. Here, when we arrived at the tavern, Mr. Watson applied himself to the drawer only, without taking the least notice of the cook, for he had no suspicion but that I had dined long since. However, as the case was really otherwise, I forged another falsehood and told my companion I had been at the further end of the city on business of consequence, and had snapped up a mutton-chop in haste, so that I was again hungry, and wished he would add a beefsteak to his bottle. "'Some people,' cries Partridge, "'ought to have good memories. Or did you find just enough money in your breeches to pay for the mutton-chop?' "'Your observation is right,' answered the stranger, "'and I believe such blunders are inseparable from all dealing and untruth.' But to proceed, I began now to feel myself extremely happy. The meat and wine soon revived my spirits to a high pitch, and I enjoyed much pleasure in the conversation of an old acquaintance, the rather as I had thought him entirely ignorant of what had happened at the university since his leaving it. But he did not suffer me to remain long in this agreeable delusion, for taking a bumper in one hand and holding me by the other, 
"'Here, my boy,' cries he, "'here's wishing you joy of being so honorably acquitted of that affair laid to your charge.' I was thunderstruck with confusion at those words, which Watson, observing, proceeded thus. "'Nay, never be ashamed, man. Thou hast been acquitted, and no one now dares call thee guilty. But, pray thee, do tell me, who am thy friend?' I hope thou didst really rob him, for wrap me if it was not a meritorious action to strip such a sneaking, pitiful rascal, and instead of the two hundred guineas I wish you had taken as many thousand. Come, come, my boy, don't be shy of confessing it to me. You are not now brought before one of the pimps. Done me if I don't honour you for it. For, as I hope for salvation, I would have made no manner of scruple of doing the same thing. This declaration a little relieved my abashment, and as wine had now somewhat opened my heart, I very freely acknowledged the robbery, but acquainted him that he had been misinformed as to the sum taken, which was little more than a fifth the part of what he had mentioned. "'I am sorry for it with all my heart,' quoth he, "'and I wish thee better success another time, though, if you will take my advice, you shall have no occasion to run any such risk. Here,' said he, taking some dice out of his pocket, here's the stuff here are the implements here are little doctors which cure the distempers of the purse follow my counsel and i will show you a way to empty the pocket of a queer call without any danger of nubbing cheat nubbing cheat cries partridge pray sir what is that why that sir said the stranger it's a cant phrase for the gallows for as gamesters differ little from highwaymen in their morals so do they very much resemble them in their language. We now each drank our bottle, when Mr. Watson said, The board was sitting, and he must attend, earnestly pressing me at the same time to go with him and try my fortune. I answered he knew that was present out of my power, as I had informed him of the emptiness of my pocket. To say the truth, I doubted not from his many strong expressions of friendship, but that he would have offered to lend me a small sum for that purpose, but he answered, And never mind that, man! Even bully run in Levant, Partridge, was going to inquire the meaning of that word, but Jones stopped his mouth. But be circumspect as to the man. I will tip you to the proper person, which may be necessary, as you do not know the town, nor can distinguish a rum call from a queer one. The bill was now brought, when Watson paid his share and was departing. I reminded him, not without blushing, of my having no money. He answered, That signifies nothing. "'Score it behind the door, or make a bold brush, and take no notice. "'Or, stay,' says he, "'I will go downstairs first, and then do you take up my money, "'and score the whole reckoning at the bar, and I will wait for you at the corner.' "'I expressed some dislike at this, and hinted my expectation "'that he would have deposited the whole, but he swore he had not another sixpence in his pocket. "'He then went down, and I was prevailed on to take up the money and follow him.' which I did close enough to hear him tell the drawer the reckoning was upon the table. The drawer passed me upstairs, but I made such haste into the street that I heard nothing of the disappointment, nor did I mention a syllable at the bar according to my instructions. We now went directly to the gaming table, where Mr. Watson, to my surprise, put out a large sum of money and placed it before him, as did many others, all of them, no doubt, considering their own heaps as so many decoy birds, which were to entice and draw over the heaps of their neighbors. Here it would be tedious to relate all of the freaks which fortune, or rather the dice, played in this her temple. Mountains of gold were in a few moments reduced to nothing at one part of the table, and rose as suddenly in another. The rich grew in a moment poor, and the poor as suddenly became rich, so that it seemed a philosopher could nowhere have so well instructed his pupils in the contempt of riches. At least he could nowhere have better inculcated the uncertainty of their duration. For my own part, after having considerably improved my small estate, I at last entirely demolished it. Mr. Watson, too, after much variety of luck, rose from the table in some heat and declared he had lost a cool hundred and would play no longer. Then coming up to me, he asked me to return with him to the tavern, but I positively refused, saying I would not bring myself a second time into such a dilemma, and especially as he had lost all his money and was now in my own condition. Pooh, says he, 
I have just borrowed a couple of guineas from a friend, and one of them is at your service. He immediately put one of them into my hand, and I no longer resisted his inclination. I was at first a little shocked in returning to the same house whence we had departed in so unhandsome a manner. But when the drawer, with very civil address, told us he believed we had forgot to pay our reckoning, I became perfectly easy, and very readily gave him a guinea, bid him pay himself, and acquiesced in the unjust charge which had been laid on my memory. Mr. Watson now bespoke the most extravagant supper he could well think of, and though he had contented himself with simple claret before, nothing now but the most precious burgundy would serve his purpose. Our company was soon increased by the addition of several gentlemen from the gaming-table, most of whom, as I afterwards found, came not to the tavern to drink, but in the way of business. For the true gamesters pretended to be ill and refused their glass, while they plied heartily two young fellows, who were to be afterwards pillaged, as indeed they were without mercy. Of this plunder I had a good fortune to be a sharer, though I was not yet let into the secret. There was one remarkable accident attended this tavern play, for the money by degrees totally disappeared, so that, though at the beginning the table was half covered with gold, yet before the play ended, which it did not till the next day, being Sunday at noon, there was scarce a single guinea to be seen on the table, and this was a stranger, as every person present except myself declared he had lost, and what was become of the money, unless the devil himself carried it away, it is difficult to determine. Uh, most certainly he did, says Partridge, for evil spirits can carry away anything without being seen, though there was never so many folk in a room, and I should not have been surprised if he had carried away all the company of a set of wicked wretches who were all at play in sermon time, and I could tell you a true story, if I would, where the devil took a man out of bed from another man's wife and carried him away through the keyhole of a door. I've seen this very house where it was done, and nobody hath lived in it these thirty years. Though Jones was a little offended by this impertinence of Partridge, he could not, however, avoid smiling at his simplicity. The stranger did the same, and then proceeded with his story, as will be seen in the next chapter. End of section 31 Recording by Nikki Sullivan, Chicago